Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the Gospel according to John. We are in chapter 13 and reading verses 1 through 20. Again, I invite you to turn there and follow along as I read. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. And when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. As we come to chapter 13, we need to realize that we have come to an important turning point. As we said last week, Jesus has completed his public ministry. And what is about to transpire now is between Jesus and his disciples. 
There will be no more signs and wonders performed for the crowds to demonstrate that he is Messiah. There will be no more teaching or preaching or invitations to the people to come to him and to believe. There will be no more verbal exchanges with his adversaries designed to open their eyes to the truth. Jesus will now give his full attention to the twelve, to the eleven, to open their eyes to what is about to occur beginning in just a few hours. And as John makes this shift, he offers a final time stamp on the unfolding drama as well as a summation of Christ's motivation for all that he has done as well as what he is about to do as well as what he will do in the distant future. The time stamp is to show that Jesus and the twelve are approaching their last meal together for we have finally come to the last Passover that means anything at all. Up until now, John has carefully marked time by calling attention to various feasts of the Jews, but particularly Passover. And we have noted this wherever we have come to those places in his gospel. And in the background has been the issue of Jesus' hour, which up until now had not yet come. We first heard of this back in chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana, you will remember, where Jesus said to his mother Mary that his hour had not yet come. So what did the wedding party being out of wine have to do with him? Jesus' hour uh, not having come has been the reason for several other things occurring or not occurring throughout John's gospel. But now John indicates that Jesus' hour has come. It is upon him. Now, to any readers of John's Gospel that might be inclined to question why Jesus would do what he has done or what he is about to do, John answers that question by saying that it all has to do with Jesus' love for those who belong to him. Even though Jesus is about to return to the Father and the heavenly realm he occupied before the Incarnation, John is explaining that it was out of Christ's boundless love for us that he first agreed to the Incarnation. And all the while he walked the face of the earth, all the things that he did for us originated in his love for us. And what Jesus is about to do on Calvary's hill is also out of this same great love for those who are his own And furthermore, everything else that Jesus does, interceding for us even now before the Father, is due to his love for those who belong to him. Christ's preservation of the saints, such that he will lose none whom the Father has given to him, is testimony to us of the depth and width and breadth of Christ's love for his bride, the church. James Montgomery Boyce has said, God has done some things for all men, but on the other hand, God has done all things for some men. And it is this great love that Christ has for his own that answers so many of the questions that people raise about Jesus. He was motivated 
to do all that was necessary to rescue his bride from her bondage to sin, even if it meant being humiliated and dying for her sake. But with that brief literary interlude, John then brings us to the Passover table, where everyone has been invited to take their place. Everyone is there, including Judas Iscariot, whom John describes as the disciple who will soon betray Jesus and lead the authorities to Jesus' encampment, which results in Christ's arrest. Jesus will wash his feet along with all the others, which speaks to us of the fact that what he is doing is not about our deserving this act of selfless love, but it speaks to us of the character of our Savior. Throughout John's testimony, we have seen that Jesus heals all who come to him. He feeds all who come to him. He implores all who will here to come to him. Christ demonstrates love and mercy and grace to any and all who seek him. He searches out the outcast like the Samaritan woman and the blind and the lame. He does not reject those in authority when they ask humbly for his help. He helps those who are in need. He will not refuse those who are downtrodden. So let this be a lesson for any who hesitate to come thinking that they are not worthy because you are not. None are. But Jesus does not treat the worthy with His grace. His grace comes to those who recognize their unworthiness and they humbly fly to Him for dress. In this moment, Jesus rises from the table and begins to remove His outer garments until He is girded only in His undergarments such that He is fit to engage in the menial task of washing the feet of those who have walked with Him for the past three years. Now we can only imagine the thoughts that must have occupied the minds of the disciples as he went from one to another and then to another washing off the dirt and the grime and the stench of the filth that covered those ancient roads. There was a reason that this awful job was typically given to the lowest house slave. But when Jesus came to Peter, he met with resistance. Lord, do you wash my feet? Now presumably no one has dared to say anything as Jesus has made his way round the table, but evidently Peter's mind has been attempting to make sense of this. To him this task should not be undertaken by his rabbi. To him this is beneath Christ's dignity. Only a few days ago the crowds were hailing Jesus as the Son of David singing their hosannas, calling upon Him to save now. What would those crowds be saying if they could see Jesus engaged in this kind of filthy job and on the night of Passover, no less? But another part of Peter's protest may have been his own sense of pride and his difficulty in receiving such an act of humility and grace. 
In his mind, this is something of a role reversal, like that of John the Baptist who said to Jesus that, that John should be receiving Christ's baptism rather than the other way around because he was not worthy. And we get the sense here that Peter does not feel right about this because he should be the one engaged in this dirty job, offering to wash Jesus' feet instead of being on the receiving end of this act of love. One of the stumbling blocks that people encounter when challenged to place their faith in Jesus is that they do not feel right about receiving so great a gift as eternal salvation by faith alone. Their subconscious sense of unworthiness is so great that they realize that they do not deserve what is being offered. But then their pride kicks in to preserve their own dignity, and they offer then to buy it through an offering of works, but to rightly receive Christ's gracious gift involves the death of our pride, and many are slow to do that. So when Jesus comes to Peter, he fails to readily surrender to whatever this is that Christ is doing, And Jesus gives him enough of a reason to proceed in the same way that he encouraged John the Baptist to proceed with his baptism. What I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. But unlike John the Baptist, Peter resists all the more. And he uses a double negative here as an intensive to make his point Even more strenuously, you shall never ever wash my feet. How often do we act like we know and understand better than the Son what is going on and what should happen? Jesus replies, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now that statement seems to have finally broken through Peter's resistance. The Greek word that John records here, meros, is also reported in the story of the prodigal son who demands that his father give to him his share of the inheritance. And so Peter, who probably still is not understanding what Jesus is up to, does understand enough to realize that Jesus is telling him that it is absolutely essential that Jesus proceed with this if Peter wants to go where Jesus is going. And then in typical Peter fashion, he demonstrates that he does not understand, for he goes completely overboard and asks Jesus for a complete bath. Have you ever wondered if James, the brother of our Lord, the author of the book of James, had Peter in mind when he wrote, Be quick to hear, slow to speak. Jesus tells Peter, as well as all those who are in the room, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, not all of you are clean. Uh Uh-oh. Now, as those who know the end of the story, it makes you wonder what was running through their minds at that moment. 
I mean, it must have raised an eyebrow or two. It must have caused some to exchange confusing looks with knitted brows and wondered what Jesus meant. Surely only one was confident of what Jesus was hinting at, for the thought of betraying Jesus to the authorities was not new to Judas. That temptation had been rumbling around in his mind for a while now. We know of Judas's love of money because John mentioned it at the beginning of the last chapter. We know that there is an arrest warrant out for Jesus, and we learn later that Judas collects a bounty for his evil deed. And later in this meal, when Jesus tells Judas to do what it is you're about to do, but do it quickly, Judas does not feign ignorance. He immediately leaves the others to betray the Lord. And so Jesus is declaring here that by their election, the other disciples are already in a place of eternal security. Whatever doubts they will wrestle with in regards to the resurrection, we assume that Peter was speaking on behalf of them all at the end of chapter 6 when he declared that they had come to a point of faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Holy One of God. That faith in Christ is the result of Jesus having elected them to salvation. So when Jesus declares that they are clean, he is affirming what the Apostle Paul will later declare to the Ephesians, that they were chosen before the foundation of the world. Well, when Jesus has finished, he replaces his robes and retakes his place at the table and asks them if they understand what he has just done for them. And then, without waiting for an answer, he offers his explanation. It is one that involves dying to self and living for the sake of another. As their esteemed Lord and Savior, Jesus has taken on the role of a servant, not because they deserved his service, but because of his love for the Father and his love for those who are his own. And within the community of faith that will be established through the proclamation of the gospel, Jesus mandates that they behave this way towards one another. That out of their love for the Father, out of their love for Him, out of their love for their brothers and sisters in the faith, that they willingly take on the role of a servant in no less of a manner than what He has just dramatized for them. Now this gives us pause. How many of us operate within the body of Christ with this mindset? How many of us are willing to suffer some level of indignity in order to advance the cause of a brother or a sister in Christ? How many of us are willing to do whatever is necessary, even at great personal cost, so that a brother or sister might be preserved in the faith? Jesus is just about to declare a new commandment to them that they love one another just as I have loved you because this will become the hallmark to the world that you are my disciples. Now does that characterize us? When we allow personal offenses or slights to govern our relationships within the body of Christ, 
rather than the admonition to forgive one another 70 times 7, are we known by our love? Would an outsider conclude that our heart is bent towards serving one another first of all? Or when our tongue gets to going and the words that fly from it are tailored more towards destructive gossip than towards constructive edification, are we in that moment wearing the towel of a servant or the robes of self-righteousness? This example that Jesus has just set before the twelve is about to be magnified to an unbelievable degree. In less than 24 hours, Jesus will be suspended naked from a tree after being unjustly tried in a kangaroo court, flogged and beaten and publicly humiliated, wearing a crown of thorns upon his head, enduring the jeers and taunts of those who hate him. So if Peter was bothered by his master disrobing down to his underwear in order to don a towel and wash his feet, can you imagine what he was thinking as he observed his master in this bloody state? If Peter was struggling with accepting the humiliation of Christ in merely washing his feet, what struggle would ensue as he considered a Savior in such a state as this? But it was this humiliation that prevented so many of the Jews from placing their faith in Christ. They could not envision a Messiah who would suffer in a manner like this. They were seeking a champion. And they got a chump. The Apostle Paul, kidnapped by the risen Christ one day, came to a different realization once his eyes were opened. And he came to understand that it was in this humiliating death on a cross that our salvation was secured through Christ's shed blood. He came to see that by Christ's willingness to suffer the indignity of the cross, that an immeasurable price was paid that covered a multitude of sins. And because of Christ's willingness to submit to the Father's will for Him, God gave to Him a name that is above all other names. And that name is Lord. And it was this realization that eventually came to all the apostles and it began to govern their lives in such a way that they were willing to suffer greatly for the sake of Christ. Paul wrote that he suffered the loss of all things and considered them rubbish so that he might gain Christ and be found in Him. When Peter was about to be martyred by crucifixion, he insisted that he be suspended upside down because he was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. But not only the apostles, so many other disciples of Christ willingly suffered for his sake as well as for the sake of their brothers and sisters. And it was through their suffering that the body of Christ grew all the more. Beloved, it is in the cross of Christ that we discover the depth of the Father's love for us, 
that he willingly offers to us the life of his son. And it is in the cross of Christ that we discover the breadth of the son's love for his bride, the church, that he willingly pours out his life on our behalf. And it is in the cross of Christ that we discover the height of the Spirit's love for us that he applies the effects of Christ's sacrifice to the hearts and minds of those whom the Father has given to the Son. This is the picture of a love that is without measure. There is no other moment in all of human history that more clearly displays God's love for humanity. Have you experienced this cleansing that is offered by Christ? Or have you resisted its application to you? A.W. Pink has said, The moment a sinner, drawn by the Holy Spirit, comes to Christ, he is completely and finally cleansed. It is the apprehension of this which gives a firm rock for my feet to rest upon. It assures me that my hope is a stable one, that my standing before God is immutable. It banishes doubt and uncertainty. It gives the heart and mind abiding peace to know that the benefits I have found in Christ are never to be recalled. I am brought out from under condemnation and placed in a state of everlasting acceptance. And I stand resplendent in the sight of God in all the Savior's beauty and perfections. God looks upon believers not merely as forgiven, but as righteous. As truly as Christ was made sin for us, so we have been made the righteousness of God in Him. If you have never come, To experience this kind of wholeness, I invite you to do so even now as we approach God's throne of grace in prayer. Will you come? Let's pray.